We're going to look at a familiar story this morning, and as, as Susan so wonderfully read, a story about uh, the Samaritan woman. This woman who we've, we've heard a lot of messages about through the years, and, and an incredible story of living water offered through Jesus. I'm not going to focus so much on the woman this morning. We're actually going to pick up the dialogue in verse 27 of chapter 4. But before we do that, let's seek the Lord together in prayer, shall we? Father, we praise you for the opportunity to come together today. Lord, I thank you for summer that's finally come and uh, that we can enjoy the outdoors and the beautiful weather and, and the gardens and your creation. Lord, I thank you that you've brought these people in this place for this time, and I pray that your Holy Spirit would be the teacher this morning. We trust you in that, Lord, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as we, as we look at this story, as we mentioned, we're not going to focus so much on the one we're familiar with, but if you'll take your Bibles to uh, John chapter 4, and beginning at verse 27, again, if you need it uh, from the Bibles found in the pew racks, it's page 863. And we, we again see the, the characteristic of this woman, who all of her life had tried to find her satisfaction and joy in men. What was she thinking? You know, the, uh, the whole idea that we would try to replace anything but what God can do is so vitally important. But in verse 27, let's pick up the dialogue. As the disciples return from getting food in the village of Sychar, and we pick it up in verse 27. Just then, his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking to a woman. But no one asked, what do you want, or why are you talking with her? In other words, I think in today's vernacular, what those disciples may have been thinking is, Jesus, what are you thinking? What are you thinking? First of all, you're talking to a woman. Now, in the ancient Near East, much of like it still exists in the world today, women had very few rights, uh, very little status in society. They could be done away with in a marriage very rapidly, only by clapping hands together. There was, there was a situation where often women weren't regarded. But Jesus was amazing in his treatment of women, not only with the Samaritan, but you think about how Jesus loved and cared for women, like Mary Magdalene, like the woman taken with the issue of blood, the woman caught into adultery, Mary and Martha. We can read all these dialogues throughout Scripture, and Jesus broke the mold in the way people treated women. But then I started looking at this, and something hit me that I'd never seen before. And I realized who that woman was. Not just her profession, but she was a Samaritan. Now, who were these Samaritans? Well, Samaria, if you remember your Old Testament history, was actually the capital of the northern kingdom. After King Solomon, the kingdom was divided between Rehoboam and Jeroboam, and the northern kingdoms, whose capital was Samaria, became the, uh, the center for 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, probably the most notable king during this time was King Ahab. But because of their Baal worship, their worship of the Astaroth and idols, they were sent into a, a time of bondage under the Assyrians, where the southern kingdom, if you remember, went and were captured by the Babylonians. 
But the Assyrians were an incredibly brutal people. I can't even describe their brutality, especially on a family service in church. But if you ever want to study a people that I think Rome and a lot of people took their brutality from, it was the Assyrians. And after they brutalized the northern kingdom, they took many of them captive into an area we would know today as northern Iraq and southern Turkey. But it was from that time of their siege, and it's about 745 B.C. to 705 B.C., that these people had been taken captive, and they had begun to intermarry. So their intermarriages were taking place, and when they finally returned to the land of Samaria, their reputation in the eyes of Jewish people was they were considered dogs. That's what they called them, dogs. And it hit me as I'm reading this. Jesus not only is talking about women, Jesus is talking about something far greater. As a matter of fact, just to give you a little bit of more history, the followers that were with Jesus, this is only the third written event of those followers. If you look at a chronological study of God's word, you can see what happens is the first event that takes place in John chapter 1 when he calls his followers is he calls, first of all, Andrew, who goes and gets his brother, Peter. And then he calls Philip, who goes and gets his friend, Nathaniel. We don't have any other names. We don't read about James or John or any of the others in the gospel dialogue. There may have been there. We don't know. But one thing we probably know is there weren't a lot of them. And the first event recorded in Scripture that Jesus takes these followers with him is the wedding at Cana of Galilee, in which he reveals his glory. The second event he takes him is up to Jerusalem. And he does another type of party. He makes a whip and clears the temple. Now, the third event that they may have been part of, but they're not recorded, is in John chapter 3 in the dialogue Jesus had with Nicodemus. There's no evidence the disciples were with Jesus at night. But the third event when they were definitely there was this event when he takes them into Samaria. And as I'm looking and studying this passage of Scripture, which really is a result of me teaching our, our Wednesday morning senior adult Bible study, it hit me for the first time. Jesus is not just talking about women, not only talking about living water, Jesus is talking about prejudice and racism. Have you ever seen that there before? These were the dogs. These were people that nobody in the Jewish faith wanted to associate with. Now, we know racism is prevalent today in, in many ways. It's been prevalent in the past. I mean, a few years ago, in the Central Asian country of Kyrgyzstan, there was a tremendous ethnic cleansing between Kyrgyz and Uzbeks, in which many Uzbeks lost their life because of race. Back in 1994 through 96, there was a tremendous ethnic cleansing because people looked at race and the Hutus and Tutsis in Rwanda murdered and slaughtered one another. Two million were killed. Today, as we speak, the Dinkas and Naru in southern Sudan continue to fight out their racial tensions. We can look at the world and we see all their vastness, but folks, we in the U.S. are not exempt the racism that continues even today is astonishing. We look at how the African Americans had been treated in our past, and we just think it's the past. I was coming home from Turkey last week on a plane, and I, I turned on the movie on the seat in front of me, and I'd never seen it. It was called The Butler. And, and the story is about a butler who actually served in the White House for eight presidents. 
But what he had seen from the time of Eisenhower to Reagan were amazing things. And you st I started to realize, this is my generation. They still live with this pain and this hurt of what took place in the civil rights movement. We can look at the First Nation people who have been obligated and subjugated to reservations and what we have done. We can look at also at other parts of the world like apartheid in South Africa and other things. But you'd say, oh, but, but is that really part of what we need to talk about at Calvary Church? Yes, it is. Because last week, one of our own attenders, one of my sisters in Christ, had to endure a racial slur right here at church. Jesus is saying an amazing thing here in his teaching. He said, I want to teach you young disciples. It's not just about women. It's not just about they need Jesus. I want to teach you, you need to love everybody, no matter what their race. What's interesting is we see this addressed later on in some passages of Scripture. If you'll go with me to the book of James, chapter 2. James, chapter 2. It's page 978, if you need that. Hebrews, James, 1st and 2nd Peter, James chapter 2, and look with me at verse 8. James is addressing, he says this, if you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, where had we heard that before? Jesus saying it right in the great commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. Now, this passage of Scripture, we sometimes look at the context and don't catch, I believe, what the true meaning is as we start investigating the original languages. Because it has to deal with a lot in this passage about dress and wealth. But as you look at actual the meaning when the word favoritism, the King James Version of the Bible says, be no respecter of persons. Basically, what, as you investigate it, what it's saying is neither accept or reject someone based on their outward appearance. That we should not accept or reject people because of their outward appearance. And specifically, has to do with our face. So the, the idea of clothing, the idea of wealth, and what later happens, even if we go back to another passage, Acts chapter 10, look there with me, Acts chapter 10, 892 in your pew Bible. But in Acts chapter 10, there's another passage where we see Peter speaking. This is after the great sheet vision, when, the, uh, when Peter all of a sudden realized that everything was clean in God's eyes. And we read in verse 34 where Peter is saying, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does, what, does what's right. Again, he is not a respecter of persons. It's the same exact word as found in the book of James. And often we don't understand the context here because we think it's about dietary restrictions. But the context is Peter is dealing with Cornelius. And the whole idea of bringing the gospel to Cornelius' house. Now, if we go back into Acts chapter 8, we can see where Peter got it with the Samaritans. As a matter of fact, Acts 8, we can see Peter preaching to Samaritans as well as Philip. But these weren't Samaritans now, and Peter had to understand that his prejudices still remained, not to Samaritans this time, but to who? To Romans. 
and he had to move beyond it and realizing that God does not show favoritism. So how did Jesus break the race barrier? How did he break the idea that we need to love all with this Samaritan woman? Well, there's, there's a couple things I think we can notice about John chapter 4. First thing is what? Jesus started a conversation. Guess what? It starts with a conversation. And that's what Jesus did to start to break this prejudice and race barrier. Another thing I see is this. You notice as Susan read that the Samaritan woman said, you have no cup to drink from? Did you get that? So what was Jesus going to drink from? He had to drink from her cup. Now again, culturally, this, this would just be unheard of to drink from an unclean, non-kosher vessel for a Jew. But Jesus, again, wanted to show and wanted to adapt. Now, now culturally, believe me, I know I have made so many cultural mistakes. I'm looking out over uh, the crowd this morning and I see many who have served in missions in various capacities, uh, whether it's through medical mission or, or being on the field, and I'm sure they could tell you horror story after horror story of cultural mistakes. Um, I've made plenty. But, but one I remember, I was actually sitting in a church in Scotland and uh, there was a pastor from Texas who was preaching that Sunday in this church and I was just part of the crowd and, and I realized he was digging himself deeper and deeper because even though we both speak English, we both don't speak the same language. And, and there came a point where someone asked him a question, said, well, what's different about your church in Texas and what's different about our church in Scotland? And he says in his best southern drawl, he says, well, I want you to know that in our church, only the men wear pants. And there was a snicker in the crowd, just like you just did. And he said, I want you to know that we hold those pants up with what we call suspenders. And there was just laughter that burst out. Because for those who don't know, in Scotland, that what men wear are called trousers and women wear pants. Their underwear is called pants. And suspenders in that culture are garter belts, not braces as we would call them, okay? Or as they would call them in Scotland. So this pastor is digging himself in a cultural hole. Believe me, we've all done it, but, but Jesus bridges... Okay, maybe you haven't done it. I've done it. <laughs> Jesus is amazing when he starts relating an amazing thing about even drinking from her vessels. And the third thing I want you to see is in verse 40 of chapter 4. If you're not, uh, you can take your Bible back to John 4. But in verse 40, he says something. It says that he spent two days with them. Did you get that? He spent two days with them. It wasn't kind of run in and run out. It was he was going to spend time with these Samaritans. Now, guess what, folks? We can do the very same thing in our world, can't we? If we struggle with racial issues and prejudice, and I'm not speaking just of African Americans or uh, Native Americans, I could be talking about Latinos, I could be talking about Koreans or Asia, other Asians, I could be talking people from the Middle East. Whatever it is, we could be involved with building a relationship to start a conversation. Secondly, maybe you need to drink from their cup. Maybe you need to get into their world and into their culture and spend time with them to get involved. 
Notice uh, there's, a, there's a great quote by Nelson Mandela. He says this, No one is born hating another person because of the color of his skin or his background or his religion. People must learn to hate. And if they can learn to hate, they can be taught to love. For love comes more naturally to the human heart than its opposite. Now, I realize with every illustration there's some inadequacy because we know the, the heart is desperately wicked, who can know it? But, but we think about the power of what Mandela had lived through, through his many years in prison, and how bitterness had not seeped into his life, but, but grace and acceptance and love. What does that mean for us in accepting people for who they are? Well, not only do I believe Jesus was a, touching on race, but then the next dialogue is kind of Jesus challenging back to the disciples, what are you thinking? Notice at verse 31 of chapter 4, Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, Could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. <laughs> What's happening here? What's happening here? The disciples are concerned about their stomach. They're concerned about Jesus' stomach. But Jesus is saying, I am concerned more about the harvest, about the souls who are lost here in Samaria. Don't you see it? Is it possible that we become the same way? We get so consumed with who we are and our concerns and our needs, we miss out on the harvest. Now, I'm sure many of you have great stories or stories about people who you have seen that have really messed up sharing Jesus. I mean, I remember in Bible school, I was one of the biggest uh, probably uh, uh, persons that messed up. I remember one time a group of us went out to share Jesus right here in Grand Rapids, and we went on South Division, and we surrounded this little man surrounding a light pole, and there was a group of us guys, and I was voted to speak, and I said, buddy, are you ready to die? He goes, ah. Oh. I said, do you want to pray? Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, a lot of mistakes. And I could spend time here and probably guilt every one of you and guilt myself that we do not share enough of Jesus with people. But what Christ is saying here is, do we get even an understanding of what's happening? Are our eyes open? David Platt's one of my favorite authors written books such radical and follow me. He says this, the price is certainly high for people who don't know Christ and who live in a world where Christians shrink back from self-denying faith and settle into self-indulging faith. While Christians choose to spend their lives fulfilling the American dream instead of giving their lives to proclaiming the kingdom of God, literally billions in need of the gospel remain in the dark. Ouch. Okay, this has gone from preaching to meddling, right? But the reality is, is we, we become so consumed with us. Years ago, I was part of a, a training organization, and we found that 87% of everything that happens in churches is for Christians in their growth experience. Bible study, Sunday school classes, you know, whatever. It all is, is just for us to grow. And, and frankly, very little is sometimes done in churches in equipping people for the work of the ministry and sending them out into the harvest. Now, now I love that this candle is, is lit. Praise God. Amen. You know what that means, right? Yes. It means someone trusted Christ this past week. But I got to tell you, I rejoice over that, so I'm not discounting that. 
But I, last week when I was in, in this trip in a conference in Turkey, I was talking with a pastor from Singapore whose church in the last 10 years has sent out 1,800 missionaries. One church of 600 people, basically. And I was talking to another pastor in Africa who was just rejoicing. He said, you know, this past week we had 80 people come to Jesus. And this past month we baptized over 150. And I'm going, okay, God is alive in the harvest. And what Jesus is saying to his disciples is, open your eyes, folks. He says, open your eyes. Do you understand? Do you see? Do you understand what's taking place here? And as I look at my own life, I have to ask myself, have I opened my eyes? I, I used to live in Colorado, and believe me, it's a beautiful state. I mean, my view out of my office window was Mount Evans. I mean, it's hard to take. Now I get to look at a, a parking lot, you know. <laughs> but at least I have a window. I'm not, I don't, for all those on staff who don't have windows, Joel, okay, I'm not, I'm not, I don't want to give it up, all right, or Susan. <laughs> But, you know, looking at Mount Evans every day was really kind of cool. But the one thing about living in Colorado that I experienced is the culture there is very isolated. It's very independent. Uh, and as a result, people don't really talk with each other a whole lot. Everybody in the south suburban area where I lived had six-foot-high fences, and you never saw your neighbors. You'd see their, their electric garage door open, their car go in and shut, and that was it. And you were never invited into homes. Literally, in the years I was there, uh, I was probably only in five homes because it just wasn't acceptable. I mean, during those years is when Columbine happened. We lost one of our students in Columbine, but it was totally understandable to me because it just was the culture of isolation that bred that. Now, when we look at that reality of Colorado, I sometimes see that seeping in to West Michigan, where we becoming isolated in our homes, isolated in our church, and we're not being really who Christ wants us to be. Francis Chan says this, Christians are like manure. <laughs> Spread them out and they help everything grow better. But keep them in one big pile and they can stink horribly. <laughs> so I'm wondering, folks, don't you want to be spread out? Open your eyes. Open your eyes to the reality. What does that look like for us? Well, maybe it, it looks like getting involved consistently at a business where you build relationships. There's a, there's a couple that uh, they were in first hour, uh, Jim, uh, Jim and Lois Geikema, and one of the ways they started to break down their own racial prejudices is they started going to ethnic restaurants. And, and frankly, probably a lot of us here this morning need some soul food, okay, or other things, and they started building relationships with the people, and they said they were so accepted and so loved, they couldn't believe it because of what they had built up in their own minds. Some of us need to just maybe go up the street and, and meet some Chinese nationals who've never heard about God or Jesus. Or get down to a restaurant down by Woodland Mall and meet Bosnians who, who their only concept of Christianity was Slobodan Milosevic who slaughtered them in the name of the church. And they need to see who Jesus is. Or down by where J.T. Richards has New City Church, there's 5,000 Somalian Muslims who need to hear about Jesus. Right here, this is our city, this is our neighborhoods. Do you see the harvest? Or are we too busy eating? Now, there's another decree that takes place. Susan read it earlier, but if you drop down in the text with me one more time, 
Look with me, if you will, at verse 39. It says, Many of the Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with him, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, get this, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard it for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the savior of the world. Do you read it there? Do you, do you hear it? The Samaritans got something far earlier than anybody else got. They were the first ones to understand and to get that Jesus was the savior of the world. Not just the Jews, not Samaritans, but the savior of the world. And I think about how oftentimes we are here today about living missionally, and I love the term used in its proper way, but often missional in, in the Western church especially has meant we've got to care for everybody in our Jerusalem. And the rest of the world, they can care for themselves. There is, that is so unbiblical in so many ways, and sometimes a total misinterpretation, I believe, of Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Acts 1, 8 says what? We should be witnesses where? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. Guess what? That was given to the early church, right? That was given to those early believers. They were the Jerusalem. They went to the Samaria, to Judea and Samaria. And guess what? We're the result of the uttermost. We are the uttermost. So we need to keep the uttermost mindset. Yeah, we have to be part of our community, but we have to be part of the nations, folks. And there's still 2 billion people who have never heard of Jesus. There's still over 4,000 people groups who don't even have a touch of scripture in their languages. So living missionally is, for us is living here and now in West Michigan with the mindset of what's taking place globally. So today, we are on our knees for Ukraine as they elect a new president, that there would be peace in that land because we have brothers and sisters in Christ that are loving and trying to serve Jesus in that land. We have brothers and sisters in Central Asia, in India, in the Philippines, in Africa. We have a team going to Mozambique today who are going to seek to love people in Jesus' name in a culture where if you don't understand that their worldview involves witchcraft, ancestral worship, and, and tradition, we can never make an impact. It's only Jesus and his power that we must understand that Jesus is the savior for the people of Shingangani, for the people of Central Asia, for the people of Ukraine, for the people of Grand Rapids. Count Zinzendorf, a great Moravian missionary, says this, I have one passion, it is he. It is he alone. The world is the field and the field is the world. And henceforth that country shall be my home where I can be mostly used in winning souls for Christ. And maybe that country for the vast majority of us is right here. But if we sit at Calvary Church and are not part of the harvest, are not seeing others come to know Jesus as the savior of the world, folks, we have missed following the commands of Christ. So, what does this all mean for you and I? Well, if you take your notes and on the back side, you'll see the question, what are you thinking? If, if racism has been an issue, prejudice has been an issue for you, 
I want to challenge you in one of three areas. One is this. First of all, you need to come and understand it's sin and you need to repent of your sin. Some of you here may need to repair a relationship that has caused a break in fellowship because of your prejudice or your racism. And some of you may need to start a new relationship. If you'd like more information about this whole area, I'd encourage you to get online or, or talk to our media. Pastor Ed Dobson did a series, a four-week series in 1998 that deals with all the idiosyncrasies of this issue. It's a wonderful series. And if you haven't dealt with that, I don't even want you to listen to my next two points because I firmly believe that if you cannot love all people as Jesus loved them, you will never make a difference in the harvest. But if you have, maybe it's time for you to open your eyes. There's some ideas of how you can open your eyes. Maybe you start going to restaurants that are ethnic and building relationships. Maybe you look at a way that you can get involved in your neighborhood association or a parent-teacher association. Maybe there's all those areas, whether it's Neighbors International or the number of things listed there of how you can look at the harvest. And if you want one place, if you say, man, I need to share Jesus more, I'm not sure how, you, you see Ardo Draper. I tell you what, prisoners are very receptive and they have nowhere to go. <laughs> and they need Jesus. Or maybe it comes down to, are you living missionally? Are you living in obedience? And there's some ideas of how you can expand your global and understanding of what Jesus as the Savior of the world can mean. It's my prayer that you would not leave this day the same as you came in. Maybe for the first time you understood as I understood that Jesus dealt with an issue, the issue of racism. I never saw it there before, but I believe he did. Maybe it's time you open your eyes. Maybe it's time you live out, living locally, but acting globally. May the Spirit do in your hearts and lives what he needs to, as he did with me. Father, we thank you for this day. Thank you for your word. I thank you that it's alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. I thank you that it is what changes us. Words coming from a human vessel do not. It's only your words, Lord. And maybe there's someone here who, who sees for the very first time that they don't understand that Jesus is the Savior of the world and they need to come to understand the goodness and wholeness the Samaritans understood. But Lord, for many of us who know and claim the name of Jesus, maybe there needs to be a change of heart. Lord, only you can do that and we would trust you for that this day. In your name we pray with thanksgiving. Amen.